Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now let's dig in. You snooze, you lose in this true crime gig. So many stories broke yesterday and I wasn't able to cover them all at the time. So today I'm doing updates on multiple cases. We begin with the Delphi case. Yesterday, newly unsealed court documents revealed that Richard Allen, the man charged with the 2017 deaths of teenage girls Libby German and Abby Williams, confessed to the crime during an April 3rd of 2023 phone call with his wife, Kathy. You may recall that Allen was arrested in October of 2022, charged with taking Libby and Abby's lives, and he pleaded not guilty to the crime, which shook Delphi, Indiana, to its core. Special Judge Francis C. Gull. By the way, do you think her parents deliberately gave her that middle initial C to create the sound of C. Gull? as in Siegel. I'm sorry, but it hit me as I was writing this. Judge Gull unsealed 118 documents yesterday, and in one of them, investigators wrote that on April 3rd, Allen called his wife Kathy and admitted not once, but several times, to doing Libby and Abby in. In fact, per the documents, Allen confessed no less than five times during phone calls with both his wife and his mother. According to the record, Kathy ended the April 3rd call abruptly. If I were in her shoes, I would have ended that call abruptly, too. Can you imagine how terrifying that must have been? Presuming she had no prior knowledge or suspicion of her husband being involved in this notorious crime? Like, imagine that that's your husband and you've been sleeping next to him all these years after he did that. And simply because of his arrest and now his confession, your life and the life of your daughter are also destroyed. Soon after that call, Allen's attorneys filed an emergency motion saying that his mental state had declined and that he should be moved. They alleged that the Westville Correctional Facility was unfit for their client. At the time, Allen was refusing to eat, refusing to sleep, and was, quote, wetting down paperwork he'd gotten from his attorneys and eating it. I mean, I can think of worse things to eat, but still, paper doesn't exactly sound good. At some point, Alan even broke a tablet that he had used to make phone calls and went from making two phone calls a day to making no calls. Sounds like he deliberately broke the tablet. I'm wondering if Alan, since he's confessed, will now change his plea to guilty and no trial will take place. But his attorneys have said his confessions are unreliable due to his deteriorating mental and physical health. I want this case to go to trial for several reasons. One, I want to hear about all the evidence. And two, I think the girls' families 
also want the case to go to trial. I think that even though it will be no doubt painful, they do want to know once and for all how investigators believe the crime went down. On April 14th of 2023, two psychiatrists along with a psychologist evaluated Richard Allen to see if he needed involuntary medication or if he needed to be moved to a different unit. Per court records, the experts determined that he didn't need the meds and he didn't need to be moved. And after that meeting, Allen started eating again and sleeping again, and his behavior began to return to what it was prior to making the admissions. New information about the crime has also come out of these newly unsealed documents. In an April 20th document filed by the prosecution, it says, quote, Investigators believe they hear the sound of a gun being cycled in the video recovered from Libby's phone, end quote. Does that mean that Bridge Guy alerted Libby and Abby to the weapon by moving its bolt or slide forward as insane symbolic? I have a gun and it's locked and loaded. That would be the infamous and bone-chilling Snapchat video in which a man crossing the Monin High Bridge tells the girls, quote, guys down the hill. It was also confirmed that in a video recovered from one of the victim's phones, Abby or Libby mentioned gun as the man approached them, and a 40 caliber unspent round was found less than two feet away from one of the girls' bodies. Investigators have said that the unspent round went through a weapon that Richard Allen owns. It's a Sig Sauer model P226 pistol, and apparently this was the standard issue sidearm for Navy SEALs and missions didn't require a 45. In another unsealed document, Document. Investigators mentioned that a sharp-edged object was used in the crime. Thus, it would appear that the handgun was used to nab the girls and coax them into compliance down the hill, and the sharp object was used in the act of taking their lives. There were always rumors swirling about a sharp object and a lot of the red stuff at the crime scene, but now we have confirmation. If Alan is the perpetrator, which it's kind of looking like, I mean, he has confessed freely over the phone to his wife and mother, as opposed to being bullied into a false confession by unrelenting detectives during some hours-long interrogation, then why did he opt to use the sharp object to harm the girls instead of the other weapon? A sharp object makes for a more up-close and intimate crime, as we've learned from the Idaho 4 case, and a sharp object also tends to indicate more rage. What do you guys think? Did the perpetrator want to relish the part of the crime where he destroyed life? as opposed to just getting the job done. In another document, the investigators say they spoke to a lady named Sarah Carbaugh, who stated she was traveling east on 300 North on February 13, 2017, the day of the crime, and she observed a male subject walking west on the north side of 300 North, away from the Monin High Bridge. Sarah advised that the male subject was wearing a blue-colored jacket and blue jeans and was both muddy and blue. 
bloody. She further stated that it appeared that he'd gotten into a fight. Investigators determined from watching the video from the Hoosier Harvest Store that Carbo was traveling on CR 300 North at approximately 3.57 p.m. Remember, Libby's sister Kelsey German dropped Libby and Abby off across from Mears Farm at 1.49 p.m. Then, from the Snapchat video on Libby's phone, we know that she and Abby encountered Bridge Guy at approximately 12.13 p.m. Thus, the girls were enjoying their hike for about 24 minutes before evil came their way. Note that investigators believe Richard Allen was not seen on the trail after 2.13 p.m. because that's when he, allegedly, was in the woods with Libby and Abby. And if we believe Sarah Carbo, that she saw Allen departing the hiking area at 3.57 p.m., that means he would have spent under an hour and 45 minutes with the two teenagers. That would have been enough time to either have them remove their clothing or for him to remove it after they were deceased. We know that some of the girls' clothing was found in Deer Creek and some of it was missing, namely a pair of underwear and a sock. Sounds like the perpetrator or perpetrators if you believe Alan had help, took those items as trophies. The perpetrator also posed the girls' bodies in some macabre manner. This crime is so sick and twisted. The removal of clothing points to a physical element to the crime. If Alan is bridge guy, it disgusts me that he has a daughter. How dare he be a father to a daughter and then do this to somebody else's daughters? The documents also say that once Alan was taken into custody and moved to the Westville Correctional Facility, which is a prison for safekeeping, he was immediately put on unaliving watch because of certain statements he made about harming himself. He was also given that tablet from which to send text messages, make phone calls, and listen to music. Once taken off unaliving watch, Alan began participating in recreation time and began exercising. The court documents read, the facility reports that he was doing well and that they had no issues or concerns. His day-to-day -day demeanor was that he was quiet, read a lot of books, did crossword puzzles, and exercised daily. But soon after Alan's April 3rd phone call with his wife, in which he confessed to the crime, his mental state declined. Alan currently remains in the Westville Correctional Facility, and his trial date has been set for early January of 2024. I'll be reading through all 118 documents, and if I find new details, I will be sharing them all with you guys. Moving on to the case of the serial S. Ayer in Boston. In late May of this year, 35-year-old attorney Matthew Nilo of Weehawken, New Jersey, was arrested on charges stemming from four attacks on young women in Boston's Charlestown neighborhood from August 2007 through December. December 2008. During this period, Nilo lived in the city with his family. Prosecutors have said that Nilo has been tied to those attacks through DNA obtained from a drinking glass he used at a corporate he attended earlier this year. And on Tuesday of this week, Nilo, who was released on bail earlier this month, thanks to his fiancée, who 
ponied up $500,000 for him, was indicted on more charges, including one count of RAPE, one count of aggravated RAPE, three counts of assault with intent to RAPE, and two counts of indecent assault and battery. Nilo's latest charges stem from attacks that happened between January of 2007 and July of 2008 in the north end of Boston, while the victims were walking alone in the dark, either at night or early in the morning. One woman was even attacked twice, 11 days apart. This brings the number of assault that Matthew Nilo is accused of to eight. Nilo, who I don't believe should be out on bail, is due in court on the new charges July 13th. How long do we think his fiance will support him? I'm sorry, but if your fiance is accused of eight essays and the investigators say they have his DNA from the victims, as in multiple victims, how long do you stuff your head into the dirt? I'm praying that all these victims, who must have been living in fear since their attacks, get the justice they deserve after all these years. Moving on to the Suzanne Morphew case. Suzanne is the mother of two who went missing during an alleged bike ride in Colorado on Mother's Day of 2020 and is now presumed dead. Newly released documents in this case reveal that both Suzanne and her husband Barry were having affairs with other people before she vanished. Note that Barry Morphew told the authorities he didn't know about his wife Suzanne's two-year affair with Jeff Liebler and denied having an affair himself. Himself. I wonder if this new information will sway the Morphew's adult daughter's opinion of their dad. They've been steadfastly supporting Barry since their mother went missing, saying in an interview just last month that they never had a shred of doubt about their father's innocence. Both daughters also denied noticing troubles in their parents' marriage. Note that in one of Suzanne's text messages to her friend Sheila Oliver, she told Oliver, Oliver, that she'd had a tough talk with her daughter Macy, who was, quote, weary of the tension here and had begged her mom to get a divorce. Suzanne wrote in that same string of messages that Barry was still pulling in her other daughter Mallory. I'm wondering how Macy can deny noticing trouble in her parents' marriage if Suzanne really did have this tough talk with her. I'm not trying to diss on the Morpheus' young daughters. I just feel that there are some contradictions in the story about what they knew or didn't know about their parents' relationship. I feel for these two young women because they've lost their mom, and on some level, I would imagine they've secretly questioned whether or not their dad could be responsible for her disappearance, but he's the only parent they have left. Thus, they likely don't want to lose him to prison, nor are they maybe willing to give up their relationship with him. But I'm telling you that over time, their feelings about their father will change as they live more life, as they have more experiences, as they think back to their mother and if their mother's body is found. 
Here are some of the text messages Suzanne sent that were just released. In a March 7, 2020 message to Jeff Liebler, who the Denver Gazette described as a high school flame, Suzanne wrote, Nobody loves you the way I do. I crave time with you. I crave the feeling I get when we connect physically or emotionally. You're my guy. Always. End quote. And on May 8, 2020, Suzanne again messaged Liebler typing, quote, you're the only real love I've known, the only love I want, end quote. Suzanne also mentioned plans to meet up with Liebler in August, writing, quote, I'm thinking August and being wrapped up with each other where we both belong, end quote. More than a month later, on April 24th of 2020, Suzanne sent her husband Barry a message suggesting she knew about his, quote, mistress. Suzanne wrote, oh, I'm sure your mistress has you all happy now, so you can say you love me, but bully me when you're with me. Yeah, that's love. End quote. And four days before her disappearance, Suzanne sent Barry a text saying she was done. I get the feeling Suzanne would have been better off not sending this message. If Barry is the reason Suzanne is nowhere to be found, then this might have been the match that lit the dynamite that set him off. Allegedly. Wink, wink, Barry. Prosecutors initially alleged that Barry did Suzanne in after she decided to leave him, but they later asked a judge to drop and dismiss the first-degree blank charge against him in April of 2022, just nine days before Barry was due to go to trial. The prosecution was pretty much forced to drop the charges when the judge presiding over the case blocked them from using most of their expert witnesses at trial as a punishment for violating discovery rules. But note that the district attorney can refile charges against Barry Morphew in the future, so he's not completely out of the woods. Note that investigators now are saying that they believe they know where Suzanne's body is located, but that it is in a very difficult spot and that gathering enough evidence to prove she was done in could still take years. 11th Judicial Deputy District Attorney Mark Hurlbert said this past Monday, quote, she is in a very difficult spot. We actually have more than just a feeling, and the sheriff's office is continuing to look for Mrs. Morphew's body, end quote. Hurlbert made this shocking claim during a hearing that was called by Barry Morphew's attorneys, who are requesting that all records in the case be sealed indefinitely. Of course he wants those records sealed. The rumors are that Suzanne's body is in one of the many wells that dot the area of Maysville near the Morpheus' former home. Barry maintains he's innocent and has since filed a lawsuit against Colorado prosecutors arguing that the 11th District prosecutors violated his civil rights with the accusations they made against him. I'll give Barry Morphew this much. He's got some big cojones. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now you know what I'm going to ask, right? Please smash that like button. It's a free way you can help the channel. Consider a membership, and I'll see you next time. Hand in hand, accused serial rapist Matthew Nilo and his fiancée left court this afternoon after she posted half a million dollars cash bail for his release. Are you standing by your fiancée? 
Nilo, who grew up in the North End and graduated from Boston Latin before going on to law school, is charged with raping three women and attempting to rape a fourth in the Terminal Street area of Charlestown in 2007 and 2008. Lori Pinkham was one of the women. He caught up to me and he hit me with a gun. Emotional roller coaster, but we feel like we can finally take our first steps in healing, which is a blessing. And yeah, we, kn we just know our dad better than anyone else. And we know he was not involved in our mom's disappearance. Mallory and Macy Morphew, standing by their father, who investigators believe was responsible for their mother's disappearance two years ago. The three, seen walking out of court arm in arm just moments after the charges against him were dropped. We want to heal. We feel like we haven't been able to heal these past two years. The family says Suzanne left her Colorado home for a bike ride, but never returned. I just love my girls. And I love my wife. And I just want her to be found.